All right, today we're going to look at why it matters that we understand Jesus to be eternally pre-existent, and in particular, why that matters for you, sitting on your couch, uh, sitting on your lawn chair, lying on your bed, wherever it is that you take in sermons these days. Uh, here's our outline for today. We're going to look at the God who is. We're going to look at the God who always has been, and the God who chose us in love. The God who is, who always has been, and who chose us in love. Now, the logical flow of thought in terms of that outline and what I'm trying to get at today is basically that we need to talk about the problem of the existence of God in general before we can talk about the importance of seeing Jesus as the eternally pre-existent God and then, and then why that matters for us. So the God who is, who always has been, and who chose us in love. First, then, we'll look at the God who is. Um, the, the question, I mean, really that I'm trying to get at by the God who is is asking the question, how do I know God is real? I realize that lots of people watching this video have been followers of Jesus for a very long time, but I also know that some of you are not followers of Jesus, and you're asking questions about the existence of God. People have been asking questions about the existence of God for thousands of years, and you are not alone. So believe it or not, in fact, those who you know who are followers of Jesus, those folks who you know who are churchgoers, are people who have had to wrestle with the existence of God. So again, you're in good company as you wrestle through that question. But here's the thing. We all come to believe in God through a, a variety of different circumstances and pathways. There's lots of very good reasoned arguments for the existence of God, and there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to coming to faith, to coming to believe. Uh, what I want to look at, though, as it relates to our text in a way that I, I hope to get to, uh, that I, I hope will be helpful, is I just want to look at two broad categorical arguments for the existence of God that one philosopher called the moral law within and the starry host above. The moral law within and the starry hosts above. Uh, the moral law within deals with the fact that there is right and wrong in this world, and if there is right and wrong, that there must be an ideal right that exists as an ultimate moral standard. So that's the moral law within. The starry hosts above, it deals with the fact that the cosmos, the, the whole universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the whole universe came into being, that it has a beginning, and that that testifies to a creator or a cause. So the moral law within is the moral argument for God's existence. The starry host above is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. I'm going to do my best to explain them both very briefly. Um, one of my favorite books is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, uh, the first five chapters of Mere Christianity, which are all very short chapters, are basically an argument for the existence of God from the moral law, which is, again, the fact that we know that there is right and wrong in this world. There is a right way to live and be human, and there is a wrong way to be human. And the fact is, none of us, even though we all know that this is a right and a wrong that exists, we don't do it right 100% of the time. Um, let me just give you an example. Years ago, I was working on a project uh, where I'd been asked to go out on the street with a cameraman and ask people about the problem of evil and the existence of God. And so I was going all over the city of Vancouver, interviewing people, asking them questions about the problem of evil and the existence of God. And I was talking to a couple of young students, uh, one young man, one young woman, and they both offered up their thoughts. Now, the young guy said that he did not believe in God and that he was a nihilist, which means basically that he believes there's no grand meaning or purpose to life and that he rejects the idea that there is any religious or 
or moral principles that are supposed to be governing the world. So he rejects an objective morality, that there is a right and wrong. He says that's a construct that he does not believe in. Now, I remember the look of dismay on the young woman's face when he was standing there saying that he didn't believe you could say that there was the existence of evil. The look on her face, she looked at him like he was crazy, like they'd been friends, but she just heard something new about her friend. Now, uh, I, I asked the basic questions, the standard questions that you ask to somebody when they say things like that. And I think Boko Haram was in the news or something. And so I asked him about uh, child brides and child soldiers, children who had been kidnapped, taken by Boko Haram, and then put into labor in some way. And, And what he said was, I can't say that's wrong, but I disagree with it. So he was not willing to say that that was wrong. He was only willing to say that he thought it wasn't something he would do. A nihilist says that there's no such thing as right and wrong or evil, but a person individually has to decide how they're going to live. So I pressed him again. I was standing there with him. We were having a wonderful conversation, young man, young woman. And I looked at the young woman and I said, what if I, this is your friend? And he says, yes. I said, what if I punch her in the face? He looked at me. So what if I punched her in the face right now? Would you say that's wrong? That I would harm another human being? Look on his face change. That's not a theoretical problem over there. This is an immediate problem right here. How do you deal with that? Because everything in every single human being wants to say that is wrong. But if you built yourself a mental construct, a way of thinking that paints you into a corner where you can't declare something is right or wrong because there's no objective standard of right or wrong or evil, you're now in trouble. This is what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he said, the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. So Lewis's argument is basically like this, like go and take that man and put him outside in the line that is waiting to get into Costco with all the new restrictions that are there. Go put that man in a line waiting outside of Costco and then let somebody cut in front of them and see if they still think that there is a right and wrong in the universe. That's what Lewis is talking about. There are objective standards of right and wrong in the world, and they're universal. But if not from God, where then do they come from? Hey, I think it's the moral law within. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford scholar. He came to believe in God based on the existence of human morality. It's the moral law within. But what about the the, the cosmological argument, the starry hosts above? Well, it's the argument for God's existence that comes by simply looking around at the whole universe. Basically, the idea is that if something begins to exist, its existence is dependent upon something outside of it that pre-existed, causing it to come into being. That's, That's the argument that's being made. Um, Dr. Francis Collins, who is the head of the National Institute of Health in the United States of America, has written a lot on his views of compatibility of faith in science. This is what he said. He said, we have this very solid conclusion that the universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point. That implies that before that, there was nothing. I can't imagine how nature, in this case, the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. 
And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. So we have the moral law within, and we have the starry hosts above. Something inside each and every human being that says there is a right and a wrong. Something inside each of us that says there's a right and a wrong, yet we still know we fail to do it. Something here. And when we look at the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars, there's something inside each and every human being that knows that all of that has come from somewhere because things don't come from nothing. It's the God who is. This is our answer to the problem of the existence of God in general. Now, again, that's not the point of my message today. The point I'm trying to drive at is about the importance of the pre-existence, the eternal pre-existence of Jesus. So let's look second at the God who always has been. It's the importance of seeing Jesus as the eternally existent God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. These are the first verses of John's Gospel. Now, the Gospel of Matthew begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The Gospel of Luke does not exactly start off quickly to this end, but once he gets around to it, Luke actually has a genealogy that traces the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Adam. So Matthew says, I want you to know that this is an old story and you can start with Abraham. Mark says, we need to go way back. We need to start with the prophets. Luke goes back. He says, further, this story starts all the way back with Adam. And all of them are correct. But John sees another angle. Here's how he does it. He takes us to the reality that Jesus was there before all of that. Let me show you. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Before the prophets, before Abraham was, before Adam was, before time was, God was. He wants us to see that Jesus is pre-existent. For anyone who's read Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's difficult to miss the connection if you've read Genesis before you've read John. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. So when John says in the beginning was the Word, what he's saying is is the existence of the Word is outside of time and space as we understand them. The Word here in his text is uncreated. So you could take the original words that are written in the Greek manuscript that John put together, you could take this, the line could say, in the beginning the word continually was. Jesus is the word who is the God who always has been. Keep going, John chapter 1 verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Okay, the second part of the line shows the closeness between God and the Word. The Word was with God. It's an idea that establishes relationship and intimacy. There's a closeness here. Keep going. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And the word was God. In the beginning, verses 1 to 3, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He was in the beginning with God. You say, who was in the beginning with God? Well, the Word was in the beginning with God. Who was the Word? Good question. It's the right question when you're reading John's Gospel. When I first came to Christ and I had not opened a Bible in my whole life and friends told me to start with the Gospel of John, I started with, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And I closed my Bible and said, I don't understand. Who is the Word? In a lot of ways, the answer comes from the way that you've arrived at this place in the text. John chooses his words carefully, and I want you to see the beauty of how he weaves this together. Now, in order to do that, you need to do a little more philosophy with me. The Greek word behind the English word word is logos. The word is logos. And late in the first century, when John wrote his gospel, logos had a very diverse meaning. Now, on one hand, uh, and in one sense, there's a stream of thinking within Judaism that relied on Proverbs, especially Proverbs chapter 8, and some extra-biblical wisdom literature from the Judaistic thought uh, world. And it taught that the world was created through the personification of wisdom. It taught that the world was created through the personification of wisdom, and and that idea was actually pregnant with the idea of logos. That's what's here in Greek. So some people who came to this from that tradition would have read it, and they would have said, yes, John, we agree. In the beginning was wisdom, and wisdom was with God, and wisdom was God. And on some levels, I could see how they could make that connection, but that's not entirely what John was saying. Now, on the other hand, there were those who would have read the first few verses of John chapter 1, and they would have read it through the eyes of Greek philosophical thought, specifically through the ideas and the ideology of the Stoics and through the teaching of a guy named Heraclitus. Heraclitus, for for him, when somebody was looking to find the ultimate reality in life, he would teach them about this idea of the Logos. Uh, For Heraclitus, the organizing principle of all things was the Logos, which manifested in various forms, including God and war and fire. And so Logos literally means word, speech, logic. It means reason, right? Right? When Heraclitus talked about logos. He's talking about the grand organizing principle of reality. He's really saying that logos is how you can look at the world and see logical and rational order in things. That it's not a world of chaos, that it's a world of order. He began with the belief that the logos connected everything. So here's how Heraclitus and the Greek philosophers would have heard this. In the beginning was the grand organizing principle, and the grand organizing principle was with God, and the grand organizing principle was God. He, the grand organizing principle, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the person coming to this text with a particular kind of Jewish background may have seen John's logos as the personification of wisdom, and the person coming with a Greek background may have seen John's logos as a grand unifying or grand organizing principle through which all things were made and all things were being held together. But John is about to show them that they need to take that little box that they had these ideas in and just bust it wide open. 
The Jew says, get in touch with the idea of wisdom and you'll make sense of your life. Well, Heraclitus and the Greeks would say, get in touch with the idea of the grand organizing principle and you'll make sense of your life. And John says, maybe, maybe, but the word, the logos, isn't just wisdom. And the logos is not an abstract philosophical concept that you can ground your life in. He's saying the logos is a person and his name is Jesus. John's not just looking at Jewish wisdom literature and modern Greek philosophical thought to develop his idea of Jesus as the word either, or as the logos. He's not just looking at these contemporary ideas. He's actually grounding it in the entirety of the Old Testament. The point to the first three verses of John's gospel is to establish the preexistence of Jesus, the word. All through John's gospel, we have Jesus making Uh, statements and claims to be equal with God. Think about one where he says in John chapter 8, toward the end of John chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. It's a very particular kind of phrasing there where Jesus is claiming to be God. And some people say, well, maybe you're reading a little bit more into it than you should. Maybe. But on the other hand, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, The people he said that to were good monotheistic Orthodox Jews who picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. Jesus made statement after statement, I think it's upwards of 40 statements, that he came from heaven. He made a ton of statements that he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now think back with me to what I said just a few minutes ago about wrestling through the existence of God. I used two categories. I talked about the moral law within, and I talked about the starry host above. The moral argument for God's existence, and what I call the cosmological argument for God's existence in the cosmos. We look around the universe and we think, this came from somewhere. Okay, John is tracing the Logos as a Jewish concept of wisdom which has a lot to do with how to live a moral life before God and others, right? Wisdom in Jewish literature and the Old Testament is the right application of knowledge. Jesus is, or John, pardon me, is tracing the Logos here as a Greek concept of an organizing principle of all things in the cosmos, explaining how it came into being. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I don't think I'm that far out on a limb, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think John is helping us to connect our questions about the existence of God to the person of Jesus and how in him and in his pre-existence, we are actually offered an answer to the questions of the moral law within and the starry host above. John is helping us to see what the rest of the Bible is also teaching us, that Jesus is the God who is always been. He's the God who is, and he's the God who has always been. Jesus helps us make sense of the moral law within and the cosmological argument of the starry hosts above. Jesus was sent by his Father. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do a work that would reveal the love of God in new and profound ways that we might come to answers about the existence of God. Jesus is the God who is, he is the God who has always been, and he makes a way for us to know the God who chose us in love. 
In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. He's talking to his father, and he prays this. He says in John 17, it starts in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Do you see that this is a picture of love eternal between the Father and the Son? That this is a picture of love eternal that existed before the foundations of the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God. He was in the beginning with God. See, Jesus is the pre-existent love of God made manifest. It's the inter-Trinitarian love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made manifest in our world that he might reveal God's love to us in the most profound way. Jesus is making the love of God our Father known. And you say, why? Verse 26 says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, in us. Verse 24 says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the preexistent God. And he came to us in his incarnation, in his birth. He is the one who is fully God and fully man. And he comes to us. The preexistent God revealing love. that the love with which the Father has loved him may be in us. It's an invitation into the eternal, pre-existent, before the foundations of the world love of God. We get invited into that. And you say, oh, come on, that's just Jesus praying. That's, that's flowery, poetic language of prayer. All right. How about your boy Paul the Apostle, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory, grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. God the Father chose us in love before the foundations of the earth. See, God the Father chose us in love in Christ, before the foundations of the world. He, verse 4 says, our Father chose us in Him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It says, in love, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That's one of those as sons that includes men and women because we get the inheritance of the firstborn son. You want that one. Come on, that's ours. 
The God who is and always has been chose you, follower of Jesus, before the foundation of the world because he's the pre-existent. Eternally pre-existent. See, Jesus Christ, eternally pre-existent, our way into relationship with the Father, whereby the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is in us. Through the work of Christ's redemption, his redemptive work on our behalf, it says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. The God who is and always has been chose you before the foundation of the world. Follower of Jesus, sit back and revel in the glory of that statement. There's a lot of things to worry about. This is not one of them. Glory in this. In his great love, he chose us in Jesus to be holy and blameless. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Christ City, friends, this is how we come into the love of the Father, the pre-existent love of God. This is how we come to have the confidence that we know of his existence. This is where we anchor all of our hope. Not only is he real, not only is he pre-existent, but he has come in Christ to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. Come on. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That sense of The moral law in you that says there's a right and wrong in the world. But for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, that sense that you know there's a right and a wrong and still you transgress it. Still you deny it by the way you live, as we all do. The good news is that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. See, the existence of human morality calls us to the one who is true and right and holy and blameless. But he's promised to make us holy and blameless in Christ. Jesus' atoning death on our behalf is where he takes all of our trespasses and our transgressions and our sin, all of our denial of the morality of what we know to be true and right and good in this world, all of that he takes upon himself on the cross of Calvary. In him we have redemption through his blood. His blood was shed on our behalf that we can come into faith. And so if you're gathered with your house church online, you're gathered maybe in a backyard or maybe on somebody's deck or wherever you're getting together, and it's time to celebrate communion, you can prepare for that now. When we celebrate communion, we're taking hold of the reality that in him we have redemption through his blood. We're taking hold of the reality that Jesus Christ, the pre-existent eternal God, died in our place and for our sin. We take hold of the bread, we take hold of the wine, we celebrate the truth of the gospel. And Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that as we celebrate, we are proclaiming his death until he comes. Until he comes because death was not the end. That we serve the Christ who is alive and risen, the God who 
was, the God who is, and the God who always has been. He chose us in love. Let me pray. Father, I'm so grateful for the way that we can rejoice in you, having grounded our hope in you, but the way that we can celebrate your plan and purposes and the reality that you, before the foundation of the earth, chose us in Christ. That irrevocable love that you bestow upon us as you draw us to yourself. Father, I pray that we would repent of our sin well, knowing that we've been adopted as your own. We are your children. I pray that we'd have confidence to confess all of our shortcomings and receive your love once again. Father, I pray that it would be practically evident within the community of Christ City that we do not only love you, but love one another. And that we do not only love you and love one another, but that we love this city you've called us to dwell in. Help us to be good news people in an age of anxiety. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.